today we're going to still be in our series on prayer. Um, and I told y'all today was the hard part. Um, and so, uh, thy will be done is a tough thing to pray. I know what my will is in lots of situations. I know what I want. Um, and I have prayed for my will often. Um, but to really get into that place where you pray, thy will be done. That is a, that's a, that's a deep place in prayer. And when we mean it, not just say, no, not just parroting the words, but again, as that word I used last week a lot, intentionally praying, thy will be done. I want to read you a poem to get started. I don't do this often, but this one was really sort of fit in. Um, Grace Neeson's is the author, and it says, I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish, I didn't have time to pray. Troubles just tumbled about me, and heavier came each task. I wondered, God, why don't you help me? And he said, you didn't ask. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided, why, child, you didn't knock? I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day told on gray and bleak. I called on the Lord for the reason. He answered, you didn't seek. So I woke up early this morning and paused before the day. I had so much to accomplish, I had to take time to pray. Our lives can be like that poem often, can't they? We get so busy. We have work. We have family. Even things like church, which is a great thing. Glad you're here. But we can get involved in some things that are so important, that are so vital, that we, take, that we, we miss our time in prayer with God. And there's nothing in our day that is more important than our time with God. Anything that we let get in front of our time with God is something we could lose. We say that in, in, our, in CR and AA all the time. Anything you put in front of your sobriety, you can lose. If you, if you put your wife in front of it, if you put your career in front of it, you'll lose all those things. Prayer's the same way. Those things that we put in front of prayer, we're liable to lose. We're in a hurry to do all the things, and so we fail to sometimes do the most important thing. And I'm sure that many, if not most of us here today, probably... A good resolution we could have made about 29 days ago would have been to simplify our lives and restore prayer into its proper place in our lives. See, time spent in prayer with the Lord, it is the lifeblood of every Christian. Yet it's not just enough to spend time in prayer. That time must be spent praying intentionally. We talked about that a lot last week, and I'm going to hit that again this week. In our introduction to this passage a few weeks ago, we saw that our Lord makes the proper purpose and practice of prayer clear. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that the proper purpose of prayer is to communicate with God. Only what God thinks of us is truly important. We don't pray for anyone else's ears. We don't pray to impress anyone. We're just praying for God to hear. And only what he thinks about our prayer is important. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were not praying to communicate with God. And Jesus had, had really clearly, I mean, he's brought this out about the scribes and the Pharisees throughout this sermon. He's shown us their motivations. Their purpose was to be seen by men. That's really what they wanted. They wanted the acclaim. They wanted the honor. Blow the trumpet in front of me before I do anything so everybody's looking, that kind of stuff. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells us that God loves us so much that he knows our needs even before we pray them. So when I pray them, I'm just telling him something he already knew. He knows my heart. He knows what's in it. So the proper practice in prayer then is to tell him what our hearts have on our heart and then trust him to do what is best. We do not need to make long, repetitious, 
um, just the same old prayer over and over again, trying to get his attention. Length, repetition, and eloquence don't impress God. Remember the little boy that just said the ABCs? He didn't even know how to pray, so he just prayed the ABCs, and he said, God, you'll put the letters together and make them what I need. That's, that's really how simple we almost have to get in our prayers. I imagine um, that length, uh, repetition, and eloquence advice could go for some preachers too in their sermons. Um, because we can be confident that our God, who is very real and who is very personal, he's going to hear and he's going to answer my humble prayer. He knows it. He knows it before I prayed it, and he's going to answer. And then in verses 9 through 13, what we call the Lord's Prayer, God gives the, uh, Jesus gives the, pro- the proper pattern of prayer. Lots of P words. Alliteration is big in this sermon. We started on this last week, and, and here we get this model of what the elements of a proper prayer should be. The example prayer is short. Remember, it's only 67 words, yet it covers all of what prayer is about. It tells us about our relationship with the one that we're praying to, who he is, who he is, what his position is, what he's like, what is, so, what is important in life, what our true needs are, and the source of our needs being met. It's him always. Additionally, it covers all time, past, present, and future is covered, and we begin to look at those elements last week. The proper way for the true Christian to address God is our Father. We really got into that last week, our Father. It defines us as saved and adopted into his family. Anybody can call him creator. Remember, we talked about that. Anybody can say you're the Almighty, but it's only his children, those who have been grafted in, those who have been born again into his family that can say our Father who art in heaven. And so we get to do that. We get to call him that. And because he's our Father who art in heaven, we know he's not like an earthly father. He is not limited in his means. He's not limited in his abilities. He's not limited in his wisdom. He is absolutely righteous. He's fair. He's good. He's kind. He's loving. He's all those things in a perfect way that an earthly father, as great an earthly father as you might have had, could never be. He's not a man. He's not limited. And he will never fail us and he will never forsake us. He will always provide what we really need since he knows what is best anyway. I could do some things for my children, honestly, that might enable their bad behaviors. I could definitely do some things that I thought I was really helping their situation, but it actually made the behavior worse in the long run. Parents do it all the time. Family members do it all the time. But God doesn't ever make that mistake. He, he knows that, you know, the old joke about, Lord, let me win the lottery. And, you know, it may be that money would ruin me. I don't, my will would, yes, I want that billion dollar a couple of weeks ago lottery. But the Lord's like, Chris, you would not be good with that. You know, I didn't play it anyway, but, but I, I didn't win either. So uh, he knew I, you know, probably didn't need that. Um, even his discipline is going to be fair and just. He, he, even when he does things like that, he, he never has uncontrolled anger. He's never unjust. He, there's never a misunderstanding with God. We can trust him completely. Absolutely, completely, we can trust God. And so the passion of our prayer then now is seen in that hallowed be thy name. We lift up Jesus. We're lifting up God. We're we're exalting him into the heavens. We come to God with that highest reverence and honor and, and we believe that he is able to do the things that he has revealed about himself. And to do less than that implies that God is a liar because he, he said that he would do it. And if I believe less than that, it would be to call him a liar. We speak of him in a reverent manner and we encourage others to do the same. We don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. 
We don't want to be disrespectful. We hallow his name by also seeking to live in a virtuous manner so that the people who see us and hear us say that we are Christians will think, oh yeah, you are a Christian, as opposed to somebody who's calling themselves a Christian but is acting like a fool and, and everybody in town knows. See, that brings glory to his name when people who are Christians act like Christians. The next element of our, is our earnest hope and our desire. Remember, thy kingdom come. We long for that day when Jesus is going to reestablish his kingdom in its fullness here on earth. We yearn for his return, but this aspect of prayer also means that we desire for Jesus to reign within our hearts here and now. The kingdom of God can be present on this earth to the extent that we will allow it to come into our lives and, and, and set up his kingdom in our lives. The kingdom of God is here on earth. Scripture tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. And as strangers and, and pilgrims down here, we act as ambassadors for God. We're the ambassadors that people will see. Oh yeah, that's what a Christian looks like. Oh yeah, that's what Jesus' love would look like. Oh yeah, that's what his kindness, that's what his goodness would look like because they see it in us. And now, I gave you all that to, to just tell you what we've talked about the last few weeks. And now we get to the hard part. It really is the hard part. We did the fun and easy part last week, but this is the hard part because this is the part that calls us to true discipleship. The occupation of our prayer is found in thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the center of prayer for a true Christian, and it is the point that is probably ignored the most by most Christians when they pray. I think of the prosperity doctrine preachers who, who pretty much ignore thy will be done. They take verses like Matthew 21 and 22 it's, and that says, and all things ask in prayer believing and you shall receive. And they use that scripture to, you just name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it is what I've heard as a kid. You just name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. And, and they use that scripture and they teach that you can get whatever you want from God. How shallow an understanding of God that is. That's, that's so far from what Jesus is teaching. They never put together those verses with James 4 and 3 that says you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. See, God knows our motives too. He knows our heart as well. And, and he, the finish of, of James 4 and 3, so that you may spend in on your lusts. Sometimes we don't get some things because he knows we'd use them the wrong way. Or 1 John 5, 14 and 15, which if you ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request in which we have asked from him. Some of us just want our will and not God's will. And that is the basic problem in, in, in preaching like that prosperity stuff. It is, it, it's selfishness. It, pure and simple, it's just selfishness. Those who follow it don't understand that prayer is about seeking after God's will, not my will. See, prayer, this is an important understanding. If we can all get this, prayer is an application of us trusting God. If I trust God and I pray, I will not pray incorrectly because I trust God has everything for me in his hands, every plan for me, everything he's prepared for me, all of it, good and bad, he's got it in his hands and I can trust in that. Others may, uh, may not attack the idea of praying for God's will to be done directly, but they'll also do it indirectly. And I've been guilty of this so many times in my Christian life. I, I've, I've always said thy will be done, and I, I, I can tell you that I, I mean it, but there are times where I, I know in my heart I didn't. 
And so there's some, some indirect ways in which we can kind of show doubt and, and that we don't really believe that. There are many people who struggle with this element of prayer because they do not yet grasp the nature of true love and the, and the, the goodness of God. We sometimes do understand that our prayer is about seeking God's will and not our own, but we don't act like we think that. We know it, but we don't act like we know it. We resent not getting what we want out of life. Has anybody here ever been resentful towards God? I have. I'll be the first to admit it. God didn't give me what I wanted. And I resent God. I, I was angry at God. How crazy. But we all have done it. Everyone in this room, we've done it. We wanted this and we didn't get it. So we're mad. We're kids. <laughs> we're his kids, thankfully. We're his kids. We're jealous of what other people have. And then we question God because he didn't give us the same thing or better. We want our relationships to work out in certain ways, and when they don't, we're hurt and we're angry. We want to have good health, and we're annoyed when we don't have uh, good health, and then all of a sudden we're going to see the doctor. Now, well, God, you failed me for that. We're irritated because we want our pleasant circumstances to always just be happy, happy, joy, joy, but we find we're suffering because of other people's sin or because our own sin or a combination of the above. It may or not be expressed verbally, but sometimes we blame God for the things we want but do not have. We don't even have to say it out loud. Our brain has already done it for us. And those attitudes, they'll often strike, or, or I guess they get real close to the surface when tragedy strikes. Though we're to have compassion for the emotional, emotional turmoil a person may be going through, a person's reaction manifests what is really in their heart. And too often, it's pride instead of humility. We think of ourselves as worthy or deserving of something. And in that way, we're not poor in spirit. Let's go all the way back to last June. We are not poor in spirit when we do that. We're not crying out for God's mercy and God's grace. What we're doing is we're more mad than we are humble when we get to that place. If we will even pray, thy will be done, we pray it with resentment or defiance. And that's not true prayer, and it reveals a sad delusion of who God is and what he has done. There's no submission to God in that prayer. There's just selfish desires. There are others that disgrace the prayer, thy will be done, even though they may no longer be defiant. Instead, they're defeated, and they've given up the battle. I've been there too. I've been there too. I've prayed thy will be done, but I don't have a shred of faith that anything will happen or change because I'm defeated and I've given up. They're left with passive resignation in that situation. They quietly go through the motions of prayer and use all the correct terminology, but there's no heart in the prayer anymore. They'll pray, but there's no heart involved. They also have this misconception about God, about who God is, what he has done, and what he desires. Many malign this aspect of prayer with an overemphasis on the sovereignty of God. Oh, he's going to do whatever he wants. Doesn't matter if I pray or not. Anybody ever done that? God's going to do what he wants. It doesn't matter whether I pray. That's called fatalism. Anybody ever been guilty of fatalism? I, I can't change things, so I, no, no point in praying. And that's the one I probably struggle with the most. I, I know God is good. I know he's great. I know he's powerful. I know he's sovereign. And his will will be what his will is. So at some point, why would I even pray? He's going to do what he wants, right? Why would I even pray? They, those people pointing at myself when I say this, those people pray, but there is sometimes no real belief or expectation that something will change. They're kind of like those that go to a prayer meeting held in a farm community, I heard this story, during a prolonged drought, 
everybody came to the church that night to plead and to pray with God for rain. They, they, would, they besieged and they besieged and they prayed and they prayed. The pastors came, the elders came, the deacons came, all the big families of the church came, the deaconesses, everybody, all the faithful in the community, but only one little girl brought an umbrella. They came to pray, but they didn't believe it was going to happen. The little girl brought an umbrella. She believed that it might start raining before she left that room. I've often been like the other people in that room. I prayed, but I didn't bring an umbrella. But before I get too self-righteous or any of us can get too self-righteous about those farmers, we should examine ourselves in our own approach to prayer. The Bible records others who were not much different. Acts 12 tells a wonderful, wonderful story of lack of faith. Peter was thrown in jail. Do y'all remember the story? Peter was thrown in jail. So the whole church, so Brother Bruce gets thrown into jail for preaching the gospel and all of us come in here and we're, we've barred the back door so the police can't come and arrest anybody else and we all start praying, oh Lord, get Brother Bruce out of jail. Lord, get Brother Bruce out of jail. Help Brother Bruce, Lord. Oh Lord, do, you know, we're just a praying. We believe that God's going to do it. And there's a knock at the door and Sister Darlene gets up and she goes out there and she peeks out and there's Brother Bruce. And he says, can you let me in? And she turns and comes in here. Brother Bruce is out there. And everybody in the room looks, no, he's in jail. He's in jail, Sister Darlene. He's not out there. That's what happened in Acts 12. Peter gets out of jail because of a miracle of God, goes and knocks on the church door. The little girl goes out, says, hey, there's Peter. And the whole group says, nope, there's something wrong with you. You're seeing things. They didn't have faith that the thing that they were praying for at that very moment could happen. I have been there before. I've been in that place. And, and so somebody, somebody actually told the girl that's, that you're crazy. Another one said that's Peter's angel. It was easier to believe that it was an angel than that it was actually Peter. That's, that's crazy to me. They'd been fervently praying, but they didn't believe that God would respond to their prayers. We're often no different than they are. We pray, but we have little expectation that God's will, God's will will respond to our prayers. Let's, we're getting kind of deep right here, but please stay with me. That mindset will eventually cause your prayer life to either cease or become a dead ritual of religious just doing, going through the motions. Yet the Bible is, teaches in no uncertain terms that God is sovereign. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Numbers 23 and 19. But the Bible also teaches that in his ways, God pays attention to our prayers. And as a result, things happen and things change. This is kind of a hard concept because God's will is sovereign, but he listens to us too. James 5, 13 and 18 makes the point very clear when he talks about praying for the sick. And then he says in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah said a prayer and God changed because it, it was probably just going to normally rain somewhere in three and a half years. So God changed the entire, literally changed the atmosphere so that it would not rain for three and a half years. We need to pray and when we do, we need to believe that God will hear and he will respond. 
Praying for God's will is not to be fatalistic, that, that thing where God's going to do whatever he wants. We still are to pray. I hope you know that everything that happens in this world is not God's will, though. Do you know that? Everything that happens is not necessarily God's will. It may be in the realm of his sovereignty, but sometimes things happen that he lets happen. It wasn't his will, but it happens anyway. And let me explain. How can I say that? I, I want to, let me explain. See, God's moral will is stated in his commandments. We know right from wrong, right? All of us have an idea of right from wrong. But man has been given the ability to make choices and must choose to either obey or disobey those commandments. It is not God's moral will ever that, a, for example, the most horrible thing I could come up with, I was putting this together, is that a baby should be murdered. It's never God's moral will that that should happen. But he gave men and women free will free choice to do things that are evil because if they didn't have that free choice to do evil then they could never choose the good and follow him either so God had to give us free will and so it's never God's moral will that something terrible happens but in a world of free will unfortunately some people will choose to do evil in that sense God's moral will didn't happen because of sin yet it is God's will that all sinners would come back to him in repentance 2 Peter 3 and 9 says, God is patient towards you, and he is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, God wants repentance, but judgment is God's sovereign will, which we cannot escape. We're not forced to repent. No one in this room will ever be forced to repent, but we all will face judgment. Every single person in this room will face that. Some people think it's pointless to pray because we just don't know what God's will is. Uh, we, we, bad things happen in the world all this you know there's wars and, and murder and death so we, we just don't even know what God's will is it's why even pray about it let me tell you something neither prayer nor God's will is shrouded in mystery he has revealed it to us the Bible explains clearly how prayer works and what God's will is both in the principle of the prayer of, of praying for God's will and in specific statements for example, when you or someone else sins, that's not God's will, we, or moral will. We just talked about that. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13 is very clear that it is not God's will that we sin. No temptation has overtaken you but that, that which is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. When we or someone else sins, it's because we are in defiance of God's stated will. We know right from wrong. When I sin, and I have, anybody else in here ever sinned? I mean, anybody? I have sinned. When we sin, we are in defiance of God's will. James 1 and 13 tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it bringeth death. See, God has revealed his will to us, and we can't claim ignorance of his will or, or, or have an excuse for not obeying it. He expects us to read his word and to learn his will. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to know, well, am I supposed to... Uh, do this on the 31st of January or not. I'm not saying like that. But we can figure out the general principles of his will. He expects us to. We don't pray blindly when we say thy will be done. Consider this, Romans 12 and 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may, be, that you may prove what the will of God is. 
that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Lord expects us to resist the pressures of the world that is trying to mold us into its image. See, the world is putting all that pressure, right? The world is constantly trying to act like us, act like us, and it is a massive act of resistance for us to act like Christ. Because the world, just going along with the flow would be a whole lot easier. It is a massive act of faith and trust in God for us to follow God's will and not go along with the flow in the world. Colossians 4 and 12 says, um, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. The expectation here is that the Colossians, and, and us as well, the Colossians and the church at Bentley, that we should know and stand in the will of God. 1 Peter 4 and 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. In this passage, we find that living according to the will of God is contrasted with living in the flesh, according to the lust of the flesh and the desires of the flesh. This would be impossible for us if God had not revealed it to us what his will is. 1 Peter 4 and 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. When I choose to do what's right, I am doing God's will. When I'm faced with a decision and I know what's bad and what's right and I do what's right, I am in God's will. Our comfort in the midst of suffering is knowing the will of God in every matter. If that could not be known, then it would be extremely difficult. At best, it would be difficult for us to entrust our souls to God because we would be uncertain what is right and whether he was faithful. 1 John 2 and 17, And the world is passing away and the lust thereof, but the one who does the will of the Father abides forever. Here we find the very sobering ramifications if the will of God could not be known. What I'm saying is he has provided a way for us to know his will. It is not mysteriously unknowable. A person who claims they don't know the will of God only demonstrates their refusal to seek the will of God. They reveal that they do not know the scriptures or have much of an interest in knowing them or what God has said to us in those scriptures. When it comes to praying, thy will be done, many people attack that element of prayer by mouthing the words, but having hearts that are insincere of that desire. I have before. I've mouthed the words, but my heart was so insincere. I know I've prayed thy will be done, then got up from my prayer spot and immediately started working to make my will come true. Anybody else ever done that? I've prayed, Lord, thy will be done. And I get up and I start making phone calls and I start doing this and I start doing that to make what I want to happen, happen. I've done it so many times. The tragedy here for me and for many others is that we're self-deceived at that point. We think that we really do want to have God's will done in our matter that we're praying about. But the sad fact is that we really want our own will to be done. Or maybe, you know, here's the other thing. Maybe we just want to be able to blame God when it all goes south. Either way, it's a tragedy. We have already seen that all that happens is not God's moral will. Each of us are individually responsible for our own sins. And let me add this. If you are praying for God's will to be done as a true expression of your desire, 
then it only follows that you are already seeking to be obedient in those things that you know are God's will. For example, prayer. It's God's will that we pray. If you don't pray, but then all of a sudden you have like this big request, thy will be done. His will is that you were to pray every day. His will is that you have a consistent prayer life. If I'm not praying, then it's really hard for me to all of a sudden come up with a prayer, a prayer and say, thy will be done, because I'm not already doing the things that are God's will. Coming to church is God's will. If I'm not coming to church, then it's hard for me to pray in my prayer, thy will be done, because I'm not submitted to God's will anyway. It is ludicrous to be praying for God to do his, his will in our lives when we refuse to follow what he has already revealed to us as his will. That fact exposes the prayer lives of so many people. It exposes the depth of our faith, really. Let me give you an example. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3 states, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but rejecting the God who gives the Holy Spirit to us. Could God be any clearer in this verse? He says to abstain from sexual immorality. He says don't transgress your brother. He says don't defraud your brother. Yet it is not unusual to find people who are doing those three things and are still praying for God's will. Still praying, treating people wrong in business, committing all sorts of sexual sins, but still they show up at church and they pray, God, let your will be done. If we're not following God's will and the things that he has revealed to us, then it is awfully hard for us to find the will for the things that have not yet been revealed to us. Does that make sense? Can a person really sincerely pray for God's will concerning their life when they're violating what God has already said in his will? Here's another passage that states God will, but it, it's so often ignored because we just don't want to hear this. 1 Peter 2 and 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Remember that this was written when Caesar was on the throne in Rome. Not a single member of Paul's audience liked Caesar or liked Rome. Nobody liked the Roman government. And Paul is still saying, submit yourselves to the authority. We may not like what our government is doing or the people who are in positions of authority over us, but we are to submit to our governing authorities until that point where it would require us to disobey God. That's what the Bible said. That's the will of God that we do that. So we must obey God rather than man when it gets to that place. But until it gets to that place, paying our taxes honestly is the will of God. This is an awful thing to preach this time of year. Everybody's getting their W-2s in. But that's the will of God. And here's the one. Oh, dear Lord. Obeying traffic laws. I'm just being honest. I've got to work on that one. 
paying our taxes, obeying traffic laws. 1 Timothy 2 states that we should pray for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in goodness and in godliness and dignity. How about this verse, Ephesians 6 and 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves to Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Regardless of how bad you may think your job is, you are not a slave. And he just told slaves, be obedient to your masters. You may have a rough job. You may not like your boss at all, but you're not a slave. But what is God's will concerning how you do your work? That verse that we just read is plain enough. We are to work with a sincere heart in a way to please the Lord. That's who we're trying to please in the job we do. We're working to please the Lord. That's the one we're really working for. How can a person seek the Lord's will about a new job or a different position in the job they're already in when they're not obedient to the Lord in their current job? I'm just really breaking this. This is like getting nitty gritty because I really want to bring home the point that we are praying thy will be done. And so these are not the funnest examples. These are, but this is what we're really playing at, praying in our heart when we say, Thy will be done. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in you in Christ Jesus. Each of those statements is the will of God. It can't get more clear. Those things that I just read, they are the will of God. Taking that verse literally, then listen to what I'm saying next. If you do not rejoice always, if you do not pray without ceasing, if you do not give thanks to God in everything, then you are out of the will of God. I, I, I really don't, <laughs> lightning's going to hit me. I really shouldn't be in front of you because I don't do all those things. I want to. I need to get better at them. But, man, there are days where I just don't give thanks. It was a hard day. It was a horrible day. It was the worst day ever. And the last thing I want to do is give thanks. Rejoice always? God, how can you ask that of us? He, said, he didn't say be happy always. He just said rejoice always. That's that joy of the Lord that is our strength. See, that's what he's talking about. Pray without ceasing. Ah, there's some times I have not prayed in my life. I've gone through, through seasons where I just didn't think it was going up there and, and I just stopped. I was outside God's will. Can we really be praying for God's will in a matter if we are disobeying the things that he has clearly stated is his will? I, I know I'm saying some awfully hard, just really, really tough things, but I, I really want to get across the point of what the will of God is. Now let's get out of the atmosphere a little bit and let's come back down to earth. How do we pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, again, still not getting easy, but I think we're getting back to earth a little bit. We do it the same way Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. It would be good to study that whole passage. We could do a whole sermon on that one. But for our purposes this morning, just a, a brief discussion will make the point. In Matthew 26, we find Jesus petitioning the Father three times with great emotion about his human desire to avoid the cross. Jesus describes that himself in verse 38. He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. 
Three times in this prayer, three times Jesus says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Three times. Jesus, who knew what he would be purchasing our salvation. He knew that we had to come to him or else we would be lost forever. And Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. Yet at the same time, Jesus seeks out and yields himself to the Father's will. And he says, oh, that we could all pray this. My Father, if this cup cannot pass away unless I drink it, then thy will be done. It is to be the same for us. If I am walking through the darkest valley of my life, if I am walking through just chaos and hell is on each side of me, Nevertheless, thy will be done. God, I don't want to be in it. I really would much rather some some pretty grass. But if you're making me walk in the rocky places, then thy will be done. When we pray for thy will to be done, there should be passion in that prayer. We should mean it. We should have passion about it. We should express our hearts, cry in our petitions, absolutely. Express what you want. Tell God exactly what it is you're asking for. Don't hold back. Tell God everything that's in your heart. Tell Him what you, God, I want this for my family. I want this for my church. I want this for my job. I want this for my kids. I want to see these miracles. I want to see so-and-so saved. I want to see my family saved. I want to see everybody come back to God. I want to see a promotion at work. We really could use some more money, God. All the, tell God everything. Everything that is in your heart. Yet when we do it, there is a total seeking and yielding to the will of the Father. In all that we pray, all those things that we tell God out of the, the just the, the crushedness of our heart, out of all of that, there's still a yielding to His will, just as Jesus did in the garden. The hearts of true Christians want God's will to be done, not their own. In humility, we know that our understanding is so limited. His ways are so far above our ways, aren't they? We can't even imagine his wisdom or his knowledge. We can't imagine his grasp. We can't imagine his justice. We can't imagine his grace. We can't imagine his mercy. Our understanding of God is just so limited. And so we don't always see what God is trying to do for us. God wants some things for us that... And it may require things to not go our way for God to do something miraculous and amazing and miraculous. And that results in us being able, once we get to that place of trusting, that results in us being able to give thanks to God in all things. All things give thanks to God, both the pleasurable and the unpleasurable, because we know we can trust God to do what is right He will always, always, always do what's right. And when we pray for God's will to be done concerning, like if we have a lost child concerning their salvation, we are praying that the Holy Spirit will convict them of their sin and their need for Jesus, that they will understand all of what it means to trust God for salvation and that they will yield their lives and they will walk in obedience. See, the timing then becomes up to Him. I've prayed the prayer of my heart for my lost child, but the timing is now up to God. 
when we pray for God's will to be done, when facing those tough decisions, we're praying for a clear understanding of the biblical principles and precepts. I have to make my decisions based on the biblical principles and the precepts that God has for me and that, and that, that they would apply to that decision. And then the decision would be made based on that and how it would affect my ability to serve God. We pray that the decision is based upon the spiritual consequences and not the enticements of the world. Think about the spiritual consequences of our decisions. When we pray for God's will in tragedies, we pray that unbelievers would see the frailty of human life and, and they would turn towards God and they would quickly turn towards God and they would, they would seek His face. And we pray that believers then in the same situation, believers would increase their trust in the Lord and take advantage of every opportunity we have to praise God because we realize how limited those situations are. We pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The true believer wants God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is where God sits enthroned and his will is done there perfectly and without hesitation. I mean, it happens. God's will happens in, in heaven. And the result is that heaven is a place of peace and order and righteousness and justice. That is our desire for the earth, but we know it's not going to always be like that because man is by nature a sinner. One day Jesus will sit on the throne of David and then it will be like that. But the true Christian understands who God is and his own relationship to him. We pray to the creator of the universe, our Father who art in heaven. Our passion is to see the Lord exalted. And then we pray, hallowed be thy name. Our God is the creator. We are the created. It is the Father's will that must be done. Our hope and our desire is to see him bring about the fullness of his rule, both in this world and in our lives. We pray. We stand and we pray, thy kingdom come. And our occupation is to see that God's desires are accomplished in this world. We pray, then thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not my selfish desires. Even when my selfish desires are objectively good, I can have good desires that are still selfish. But I pray, thy will be done because all that I want is his will to be done. My prayer for you this week is that these elements of prayer will become real in your own prayer life. That when you pray for God's will to be done, you truly mean it. And that your very life just demonstrates that desire. When you sit down at your prayer time this week, start working on that, thy will be done. And when you you're, you're, make your request known to God, but then say, thy will be done and mean it. There's an ultimate act of submission when I give it to God and I leave it there. I just leave it on the altar because oftentimes what we do is we bring our needs up here. We'll, we'll have a great service. We'll bring our needs up. We put them on the altar. We walk out the back door, but we peek in. What's God done with it? What are you doing? Come on, God. It's been 24 hours. I expect to see some results. Chop, chop. And God's saying, trust me. If you're praying for my will to be done, it's going to be done in my time and my will, not yours, Chris. And I've got to learn that lesson because I'm a control freak. I don't know about you guys. Pray this week that thy will be done. There will be a peace that will come to your life. A peace in your prayer life will come because we've put it all in God's hands.